This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Roland Clark about his recent book, Holy Legionary Youth, Fascist Activism in Interwar Romania, published by Cornell University Press. Holy Legionary Youth is an in-depth study of the Legion of the Archangel Michael, one of the largest and longest-lasting fascist socialist movements in Europe. The book reveals the contribution of seemingly contradictory practices to fascist subjectivities in interwar Romania. We will hear more from Roland about the deadly violence and charitable activities, the intellectual and manual labor, and the political action and religious rituals that enabled Romanians, particularly young people, to become fascists. And I'm looking forward to talking with Roland today about this book. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies. Thank you. As um, a way to start off this podcast, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in East European history. Sure. So I grew up in Australia and went to the University of Sydney. As a as an undergrad, I took a course on called Fascists and Anti-Fascists. And in passing, the professor mentioned something about clerical fascism. And it struck me, wow, that sounds cool. Like priests with guns, or 18-year-old male. These, these things are exciting. And so I did some more research and it turns out they lived in Romania. And the old sort of the, the out-of-date secondary literature that I had access to uh, 15 years ago describes the Legion as a millenarian cult, as an organization, a student, Christian student organization. And in my mind, that made me think like Campus Crusade for Christ with guns, thinking over the country, um, very violent, anti-Semitic, but also worshipping their leader as the Messiah and believing in sort of the resurrection of the dead and all this sort of stuff. What I can confidently say now is that I was led into the study of the Legion under false pretenses. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't really like that. But this is this is what the prom had promised to me at the time. And so I thought, wow, I, ha- I need to find out more about these people. And I wanted to do a PhD on them. And in order to do that, I decided I needed to move to the US to work with people who were specialists in Romanian history. At the time in Australia, there was no one who was a specialist in Romanian history to, to study under. And I also needed to learn the language. So I uh, I taught for a year in Australia to make some money and then moved to Romania for 18 months, doing working in an American school mostly so I could have a visa and an excuse to be there and learning the language as much as possible. Uh, while I was there, I met my wife, my future wife, and fell in love. 
and when you fall in love in a language, your language abilities go through the roof. Um, so that was by far, you know, the best thing I got out of moving to Romania. But it also gave me a strong cultural background and a sense of what Romania is like. And once you get into a, a different country's culture and history, you kind of, you're stuck forever because it's so fascinating, especially in Eastern Europe. And once you, so even even though I, I kept working on the Legion and kept studying it for the next 15 years, it um, it generated all these other questions about Romanian history and culture and Eastern Europe in general that, that have stayed with me. Great. And I imagine many people who work in Eastern Europe can have those shared experiences of, of going to a country and really becoming enmeshed in it. And so now I'd like to transition to um, talking more specifically about this book. Um, but to begin that conversation, I think it would be useful to uh, have you define fascism for us, and in particular to explain what you mean that one became fascist rather than adopting the, an ideology. Sure thing. Um, this is this is the question that dogged me the whole time I was writing the book, and every time I opened my mouth to talk about it somewhere, someone would ask me, what is a fascist? And my answer is a fascist is someone who said they were a fascist. And that's not a very useful definition for comparative scholars. Um, during the 1990s, but just to give you a bit of history of the way the field has evolved, in the 1990s, it was very popular to define fascism using sort of bullet points. And you say these 10, 10 characteristics, these are the 10 characteristics of fascist movements. If you can tick nine out of the 10 boxes, the movement you're looking at was probably fascist. And these, these sort of bullet points are put together very specifically to make sure that you include things like Mussolini's Italy, which is not anti-Semitic, as well as Nazi Germany, which was, but you exclude the Bolsheviks and the communists, who they fit like seven out of ten of these things often. And it strikes me as a historian that my job is not pushing square pegs into round holes or even you know chiseling out the hole to make my peg fit. I want to understand what was really going on at the time. And more recently, the field has shifted and has sort of abandoned doing that over the last 10 years and started talking about the idea of political religion as the thing that defines fascism. And this means the idea of an ideology of palingenesis or national rebirth. So this is a movement that wants to give rebirth to the nation and give new energy. So it's a revolutionary movement. It's often a youth movement. I, I find this definition problematic as well. Because when you look at um, legionaries, for example, they they talk about the Romanian nation and they're 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 following their slaves to the Romanian nation, but they're also slaves to God because it's a very religious movement and they they fit strongly and they identify strongly with Orthodox Christianity, and so for them to say that they're worshiping the nation would be horrible and anathema and blasphemous and. Also, I, I've noticed that fascists have this horrible tendency to lie all the time about what they're saying. So they'll say things that sound nice and then do the complete opposite. Um, the, the fascists, for example, in Romania would say that they have a duty, a religious, almost a religious duty to kill Jews. And they know that's sinful, but they're willing to take on that, that, that crime upon themselves. They're willing to break the law in order to to save something greater than themselves. And 
a lot of the time this rhetoric it's it's not um it's deceptive and so i think that you've got to look beyond the rhetoric and you can't trust what fascists are saying as a as a way of working out what fascism is really about you've got to go behind that and going behind that what you find is fascism is a floating term it's a term that in the 1920s identify someone with Mussolini's Italy from about 1933 onwards people all over Europe start to identify themselves as fascists and from the early 1920s people in Romania are saying what we're doing and what Mussolini's doing is is similar and then they start by the 1930s they're comfortable using the word fascism about themselves and so i look at it as a label um and i'm interested in when you say i'm a fascist how does that change your life how do other people react differently to you? um how does you know what do you come out to your parents as i i became a fascist today um you come out to your colleagues and how does that change socially what you what you're talking about mm-hmm. so as we discuss the book we're really going to talk about those details and the daily lives but before we get there um you already referred down to the relationship between fascism and nationalism so i'd like to can step back a little bit so that we can get the context of the interwar period. Um, and you actually started in the 19th century, and you say that um, when Romania became a state, an independent state in 1866, that anti-Semitism and state building were intimately connected. And so tell us about that and what that, the role of anti-Semitism for these 19th century Romanian nationalists. Sure. So one thing to keep in mind is that the idea of a nation is new. Historically, it emerges in Eastern Europe in the 19th century. And this is the first time when people start thinking of themselves as, I'm Romanian, as opposed to, oh, I'm from here, or I'm from Bucharest, or something like this, to, to have a national category as a way of defining yourself. And it, it emerges, it becomes very common and strong in the 1840s among elites and intellectuals, but it doesn't really hit the everyday working classes until early 20th century and when Romanians start to when people nationalists people that believe in so a nationalist I think is someone that believes that a nation exists and that it's something worth fighting for and when they start pushing this idea of nation they're doing so in a context where half half Romanians are some Romanians are ruled by the Ottoman Empire some are ruled by the Russians and some are ruled by the Habsburg Empire so there's no one who's ruled by other Romanians. And what they're fighting for is an independent nation state in which Romanians are the bosses. And they get that in 1866 and then to a limited extent and then the state expands dramatically after 1918, the end of the First World War. And they incorporate all these new territories like Transylvania and Bessarabia and Bukovina and Dobrozja. Um, but because Romanians have been ruled by foreign empires, you can't go to school in Romania, you can't go to hospital or the law courts for decades, and therefore being fighting for Romanian rights is a way of, I want Romanians to be on top instead of the people on the bottom. And the people immediately above the Romanians, often the people who are the, um, the Arendash, they're sort of the, the supervisors and the accountants on the estates where Romanian peasants are working as serfs, those people are Jewish. And so in order to get national independence and to fight for your liberty, you've got to fight against Jews. And it's one it's easy to fight against Jews because they have no one protecting them. Um, and so it's one thing to attack Germans 
is if you attack a German, you'll upset the Habsburg Emperor. If you attack a Jew, no one really cares. So it's a way to get to assert your national independence and to assert your privilege without really upsetting people who are going to get retaliation against you. And so as they're going through this state building process and get to um, the 20th century, you make a distinction between nationalists and ultra-nationalists. So what makes someone an ultra-nationalist um, as opposed to just a nationalist? So this is, this is a word that I make up just to, to define this group of people who everyone, um, there's a large number of people who are nationalists and nationalists can be liberals. They can, be, they can believe in the nation-state and fight for it, but they want a liberal democratic nation-state. Whereas there's also a group of people wandering around in Romania at the time who they want a, um, a Romanian nation that's defined by anti-Semitism, that's defined by Romanian privilege. And when I think about privilege, it's, it's very helpful to think in terms, of, I think, of, of white privilege or even male privilege, the way we talk about it in the U.S., um, I have. I, I want the ability to be able to beat someone up and get away with it, right? I want the ability that the the law recognises me as someone special, and this is what Romanians are fighting for, um, particularly Romanian ultra nationalists. And these guys, they believe in a Romania that's ethnically pure, so they want to get rid of anyone who's not ethnically Romanian, including Bulgarians and Greeks and Turks uh, and Ukrainians, and they tank nationalism to a whole new level which is why I call them ultra-nationalists. Um, but they, they call themselves just anti-Semites. Um, but that, that risks assuming that their hatred of the Jews is the only thing that brought them together, because it's not, because they're also they're hating Bolsheviks and they're hating the liberal government. Um, but they recognise each other as belonging to a special sort of group that's, that's set apart from the rest of Romanians. Uh, and it's, it's much more virulent and hardcore than normal nationalists. Hmm. So that's really interesting that that's how they describe themselves. But not everyone who you would categorize as an ultra-nationalist ultra also consider themselves as a fascist. Is that true? That, uh, that was my understanding from the book, that yes. fascism was even then another distinct. Um, because fascism is something that emerges over time. Um, the term doesn't, like, no one's throwing it around until after Mussolini marches on Rome in 1922. And then even then, there's a, a fascist party in Romania that emerges, and they, they're saying we'd, what's special about us is that we're trying to imitate Mussolini. But there's other people who are also, what they believe in is attacking communists or attacking politicians or attacking the Jews, and they don't want to be confused with Mussolini because he's a foreigner. And they want to emphasize, we're Romanians. This is a Romanian party, not a foreign party that's trying to infiltrate this country. And so it takes, it takes a while for them to be comfortable with this word fascism. Um, and some people just never, never get comfortable with it because they see it as a foreign influence. Okay. Um, and so before we start talking about the um, Legion, before we get to the Legion, we need to understand, I think, just the and the landscape of ultranationalists in the 1920s. And so you, you talk about in the book these various attempts to form movements or political parties that um, finally the National Christian Defense League is able to be successful. Can you um, give us some of that context? And then we'll talk specifically about the Legion. Sure. So 
organised anti-Semitism starts in the 18, late 1870s. Um, in 1879, Wilhelm Marr in Germany coins the word anti-Semitism, and this is the first time people in Europe form social movements or political parties around the idea of being anti-Semitic. And that doesn't mean that people liked Jews beforehand. It just means they didn't think that you mobilised politically around this idea. And that idea emerges, um, that comes to Romania very quickly. And in the 1880s, you start getting, by 1886, you've got four different anti-Semitic organisations in Romania. Um, after the First World War, sorry, in 1907, you get a, a, um, a leading politician and historian, Nikolai Yorga, who's an amazingly prolific historian and a national hero because it's it's rare that anyone becomes a national hero for writing history, but I think this guy's probably the one person who's ever managed it next to Thucydides or Herodotus. Um, and he launches a political party called um, the National Democratic Party, and a large part of their platform is anti-Semitism. So this is the first time anyone's ever set up an anti-Semitic political party in Romania. Um, that splits during the First World War because half of the party decides that they should support Germany and the other half decides they should support France in war, and so the, the party disintegrates. But after the First World War, many of these ultra-nationalists start forming organisations of their own for the first time, and these are grassroots organisations, whereas in the 1880s and 90s, anti-Semites progressed through occasional conferences but mostly through newspapers and pamphlets and not through formal social movements. By the 1920s, they suddenly start forming social movements. And by social movements, I mean groups of people with leaders and membership numbers and their own publications, and they do rallies and marches, and they write, uh, and they consider they identify, people identify with the cause. Um, and sometimes this cause, for example, in different cities, it emerges differently. In Yash, you have a group called the guard of the national conscience, and they're about, we have to get Romanian workers supporting the nation instead of communism. So it's mobilising workers and giving workers rights um, in order to stop them becoming communists. And then in around Bucharest, you get the fascist movement, um, national Romanian fascists, and these guys are imitating Mussolini. In Cluj, you have a group of university professors trying to set up, again, um, the only word I could... I can think of to, just, to link all these groups together is ultra-nationalist because they're not fascist yet, but they've got this, this radicalised, the radical edge to what they're doing. Um, and they all emerge immediately after the First World War. And then on top of that, you get the student movement, which is a whole new, new section. And students start protesting in 1922 where what they're protesting is we – they want better conditions in the universities and they think this is going to happen by kicking the Jews out. Universities all over Europe at this stage, um, especially in the newly created or newly expanded nation states after the First World War, just quadruple or more than that in size because suddenly lots and lots of people all start coming to university at once and they're just not ready. They don't have enough textbooks. They don't have enough space in the dorms. Um, and the students are not ready because they haven't gone through a rigorous enough high school and so academically they're not prepared. Huge numbers of them fail. The majority of them fail their studies and they get angry and they blame the Jews. And so they start attacking Jews and Romanian student organisations, they will um, they'll call the, so you'd have someone in a lecture theatre would say, okay, Jews get out. 
and then they'd keep singing and banging and making noise until all the Jews left the theatre. And outside the lecture hall are a group of people with clubs, often with clubs with nails sticking out of them or metal bars, and they attack the Jews, Jewish students as they leave. And the professors will stand there and watch it happen or even encourage it sometimes. And some often the police and the army will come in and then they will, um, the students will fight them, fight the soldiers for control of the university. So some universities are closed down for six months or more, several times through the early 1920s. Whole cities like Aradia are devastated by student rioting. And that student movement is supported by these ultranationalists who are a much older generation with money and resources and newspapers, and the two of them together, um, I think, give birth to fascism in Romania. Hmm. And I was really struck by that level of violence um, in the student movements, and I think that that was uh, something for me that was a little bit shocking, was just the... um, the way in which um, these students were responding to challenges that they were facing uh, with such extreme violence and that it seemed to spread and get so much support. Um, And I think that also then lays, um, I don't know, lays a foundation, but it's indicative of of what you talk about through the rest of the book in terms of the level of violence. Um, And but before we get to um, some more violence, there's lots of violence <laughs> in this book. Um, the uh, much of it is then carried out by the Legion of Archangel Michael, in particular, and th- that entity grew out, or that particular um, movement grew out of a split between the ultranationalist community. So, can you tell us about how this actual um, organization came to be formed? Sure. So. One of one of the, the actually to go back a bit, the 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 university professor who dominates the student violence more than anyone else is um, Ace Kruza, Alexandru Kruza, and he's a law professor at the University of Yash, and also an anti-Semitic politician. So he w- he joined with Nikolai Yorga in 1907 to form the Nationalist Democratic Party, and he's got a long history of fighting against Jews and using that as a political agenda. So as soon as the student violence starts, Ace Kuz is right in the middle of it, and he sets up first one and then a second uh, political party to try to benefit from the student violence, and he's governing it. So um, people, readers who are used to going to university senates and listening to faculty discussions and management um, would really benefit from sitting down and reading the minutes of Senate meetings at the University of Yash of the early 1920s, because every time they try to, to do something to discipline the students, Archie Kuzer stands up and says, no, actually, the students are innocent. You guys are the bad ones. And he, he under, undoes everything that any of the, the authorities try to do, and he protects students. One of the students that he protects more than anyone else is a guy named Cornelio Zelia Codrano. And Codrano, his father, is a high school teacher, but also a public anti-Semite and was closely allied with Archie Kuzer. And then Kodrano, um, he starts off working for the Guard of National Conscience, this anti-communist group. And then over time, he gets involved in more and more activities together with the student movement. He's expelled from college and then moves to France to study a doctorate as if he'd never been expelled. Um, he, he fails and comes back because... 
there's there's some sort of split happening inside the Aichikuzu's uh, political party, which is the National Christian Defence. And in particular, Kogodono's father and several of his friends are fighting with Aichikuzu, who wants to use it as sort of his personal party that's going to put him in power, whereas the others see it as a grassroots movement. And Kogodono, as the leader of the students and the most recognised of the students, says, this is not okay, I'm going to break away and form my own organisation. He called. Yeah, no, go ahead. He calls his organisation the the Legion of the Archangel Michael because a couple of years earlier, um, Kodrianu and his friends, again at probably at the suggestion of Achikuza, decided to go on a killing spree and massacre large number of and murder several leading figures in Romanian society, a couple of politicians, but mostly industrialists and bankers, and they're caught before they kill anyone but they admit it and they're put on a national trial and then let off. It would be very similar to if uh, if a group of students in America today decided they wanted to kill like the lead, the, the CEO of ExxonMobil or the CEO of Monsanto and uh, several other politicians, um, people would find it hard to say that what they're doing was the wrong thing. But at the same time, you admit that it is the wrong thing. And so the, the political um, the political leaders of the day wanted to convict them, but there's so much popular support in their favour that they're acquitted. And then Kodrianu then murders the, a police chief, a chief of police, on the steps of a courthouse in full daylight in front of lots of witnesses, and he's let off again because they said, well, he's a good boy, he's doing it for good reasons. And while he's in prison, Kodrianu says that he had a vision. Um, many years later, he said that he had a vision. So he doesn't tell anyone about it at the time of the Archangel Michael because he's praying in front of a, a, an icon of the Archangel. And he said it started to glow and I felt that the Archangel was looking out for us. And so this becomes the patron saint of the, of the organisation. Mm. And and it's based on the, the students um, is really where they're drawing um, most of their popular support from, or at least direct support from, but they really seem to want to make themselves all things to all people. And so they're, they're, they're working very hard to appeal to peasants and to work workers. So how did the legionaries go about mobilizing support among these two groups? So they appeal very differently to different groups of the population. Work at students, they want to show that they are the legitimate heirs of the student protests of 1922 onwards. And calling themselves the Legion of the Archangel Michael reminds people that Kovadanu was one of the people involved in his trials and it reminds them of his ongoing connection with the student movement. It, it takes about four or five years for him to fully convince most students that actually he and not Aichikuze is the true leader of the students. So even the students themselves don't recognise that in 1927. Uh, and they use a lot of violence often. They, um, they'll have um, fist fights and street battles together with other ultra-national students, with Kuzis students to try to, to dominate their dorms. They'll, they'll infiltrate cafeterias, places where students gather and try to dominate them politically uh, and bully other students into joining them until eventually they win. When they go into the countryside, the first place they turn is the peasantry, and they do some spectacular propaganda campaigns. An old, a, a typical politician, like a liberal or a national peasantist politician, 
he'll drive into a village dressed in his top hat and nice suit in his car and get out and make a speech and then keep driving and maybe give out some wine and cheese. And Kodri Anur, they go, these guys don't have any money. And so they walk from village to village and they have to sleep in the homes of the peasants. And as they stop, because the peasants don't want to listen to them, they'll help them with the hay. And so they get a group of three guys and two of them help with the hay and the other guy tells the peasant about the legion. And this people find really appealing uh, because it's honest and humble and down to earth. And at the same time, this is a really corrupt political system. And so any opposition party has to face serious opposition on the part of the police who want to stop anyone doing electoral propaganda who is not part of the government party. And so legionaries are constantly beaten up and assaulted by police and sometimes they fight back. And this makes them really popular as well. Um, there are some stories of legionaries going to villages where someone will come in and they'll say, he's coming, he's coming, and then they'll leave. And then a couple of weeks later, Kodriano himself arrives on a horse with turkey feathers in his hat, and a turkey feather um, made you look like an outlaw, which, you know, the sort of Robin Hood figure who steals from the rich to give to the poor, and riding on a white horse. And then Kodriano doesn't say very much in these visits, apart from sometimes he'll get someone to make a list of everything the peasants need and then say, when I come to power, I'll make sure you get all these things. And then he'll just keep riding, and people are like, wow, that must have been him. That must have been you know, the man who was going to come. Um, and so this sort of theatricality is a huge part of, of fascist propaganda in Romania. And then they go into the, the factories, and they go into the factories halfway through the Great Depression when workers are suffering really badly, and they try to tell them the reason you're suffering is because of the Jews. These the other people are taking your jobs, and we're like a union. If you join us, we'll help you get a job. And they do. They go from, like, restaurant to restaurant saying, you're going to hire one of our people, and if you don't, we'll set fire to your restaurant. And so they bully and threaten um, restaurant owners and business owners to force them to hire other legionaries in order to get jobs for their friends. Uh, and therefore, workers are like, wow, you know, these guys know what they're talking about because they back us up. As opposed to the union, the union just talks and then they get their salaries, the union bosses, and they don't help us at all. So why should we be join unions or become communists when the fascists will actually follow through? And this seems to relate to what you uh, or what they called the propaganda of the deed, and that there was not just this idea of going around and making promises, but of fulfilling those promises in some way of, of taking action. Um, and those examples of the jobs, I think, were really um, seemed to me to fit that. But so much of their propaganda of the deed was an act of violence, that even this getting people jobs was predicated on the threat of violence. So can you talk more about the, the mindset of um, the legionaries that, that violence undergirded so much of what they did and what they thought about their role in Romanian society? Sure. Um, what I find in Romania is that the story changes somewhat. For like everyone knows fascists are violent, right? In Mussolini's Italy, the squadristi, the, um, these groups of thugs and veterans and young people who just go around attacking communists, that's what defined them as fascists. And then in Germany, the stormtroopers, like these guys, what makes you um, what makes you a Nazi is that you are happy to do violence. And this would have been true of the legionaries up until. 1933. In December of 1933, 
there's major elections and the legionaries fight um, tooth and claw for those elections, but the government beats them. They, several weeks before the elections, they go around and they arrest anyone who's associated with the legion to make sure that they can't vote and that they can't get other people to vote. And then after they lose the elections, legionaries go around and they murder the, their prime minister. They assassinate the prime minister at a train station. And then the government just arrests huge numbers of them. And this is a really pivotal moment for the legionaries because instead of being the guys that win the fights, suddenly they're the people that lose. And for the next few years, legionaries emphasize the fact that we're suffering people. We're people that lose the fights. We, we're willing to put our bodies on the line. Um, but we're not the bullies here. The, the bad people are the politicians and the liberals and the police and the Jews who are, who are actually controlling the police and the liberals and the politicians because we're the victims. And victimhood has huge moral re- resonance within Australia, um, Romanian peasant culture and Eastern European and Russian, like think of Boris and Gleb in Russia. Um, if you suffer, that makes you holy. And so the legionaries emphasize constantly the fact that they're losing these battles and they're spending a long time in prison. One, one thing that, that blows me away is in Romania, you get lots of stories from the early 1920s onwards of groups of Jews attacking good Christian boys. And you find these in fascist newspapers everywhere. Um, even when the, the Romanian students are brutally assaulting Jewish students in their universities, they're publishing in their newspaper that Romanian students can't go to school because the Jews are attacking them on the way to school and driving them out of their classrooms, which just wasn't true. But you don't hear this discourse anywhere else in Europe. Everywhere else in Europe, the, the Jew is, um, is rich and greedy and lying and fat, but never violent. Whereas in Romania, Jews are really a violent threat uh, in fascist discourse because they need to emphasize themselves as we are victims and that, that's what makes us good. And goodness comes from being victims of violence. That's really interesting, that, that sort of twisting of the narrative um, around violence and different perspectives of being the, the winner and being the victim. Um, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that this electoral violence and this engaging in the elections that you quote uh, Cadrano that the Legion's goal was not to win elections, but to ensure that Romania was led according to the will of the legionaries. So there really was a, a strong belief that um, they needed, um, that they were the ones that had the answer for Romania and that, that it, they were willing to impose their will on the country and that the violence was the way to do that. Yes. Um, but, you, you put your finger there on a problem that the legionaries had in that our goal is not to win elections because the whole democratic process is flawed, but at the same time, how will we ever come to power if we don't win elections? And so Kodranu consistently rejects any idea that he is going to take control through a coup or through a mass revolution or something like this, um, and he consistently contests elections while at the same time saying the entire electoral process is flawed will never win, um, democracy is bad. Yeah, so they're kind of stuck in that place of needing elections, but also knowing that they 
can't achieve their goals through elections. And part of this uh, in the 1930s is this establishment of the Iron Guard um, as part of their electoral strategy, as well as just um, to um, to exercise their will. So can you talk about how the Iron Guard um, served to organize the violence being carried out by the Legion and, and what what impact that had both on the Legion and in Romania? Sure. Um, so in the early 1930s, the Legion organizes a paramilitary wing, which they called the Iron Guard. And these guys, they wore uniforms and they did marches and they were the fighting, fighting group. So these are your, these are your SA and your SS in Romania. And the, the government looks at them and says, these are SA and SS. This is, these are people imitating foreign, um, political parties and it's a German attempt to, to take us over. What it really is, is that's a common way of doing politics in the early 1930s throughout Europe. Um, paramilitary groups become more and more common, um, including in France. And then later in the 1930s, you get the British Union of Fascists. But th- they want to emphasise that we are a, a violent group, right? We're, we're a group with strength. And we're not afraid to use that strength. And they use it more more often against Kuzists and against other ultranationalists than really against anyone else. Um, and they also develop this idea of what they call death teams. And so if you bec- if you join a death team, the idea is not necessarily that you're going to kill someone, but that you're willing to face death for the cause. You're willing to go and do something that might get you killed by the police. And legionaries do consistently get killed by the police. Um, a number of times in the early 1930s who were members of death teams. Well, we've talked a lot about fascist violence in Romania, but um, as I hinted at at the beginning of this, um, it wasn't all about violence, although it certainly um, would seem like so far in our conversation, but there really was an attempt to um, build in some ways like a fascist way of life. Um, and so I'd like to turn and talk about that, 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 the legionaries were using rituals and community activities and the written word to um, build their um, uh, networks to uh, communicate with people. And so if to start first with these, um, your argument that fascism is really made up of everyday practices rather than an ideology. Can you talk about the kinds of rituals and practices that legionaries engaged in that then helped them become fascists? Sure. Um, so when you became a legionary, you would join what's called a nest. And a nest has normally eight to ten members. There's a nest leader and a uh, vice leader and a secretary and a treasurer. And these people, they would meet at least once a week. You would give 10% of your money and your time to the legion. And as part of those meetings, you would recite um, promises to each other, oaths to each other to obey the legion. You'd read um, maybe sections of the Bible or sections of Kodaganu's writings together to each other and talk about them. And you might, at some times, you might do um, autocritic self-criticism where you say, look, I tried to be good, but actually I'm going to be better this next week. And so they're very intimate circles where you're constantly reaffirming what your belief system is, reminding each other of why you're a legion and why you're a legionary. And you talk about, uh, and then you do things together. Like you might 
go and repair a well or fix someone's gate or something like this um, and do these these charity work projects as a way of emphasizing what it means to be a legionary. But being a legionary, I think, is bigger even than the nests. One document that was very, very formative to me, I'm not sure if it even made into the book, but I, I came across this document once of a mother writing to her son who's in prison, and she says, I'm going to make you a new shirt. What would you like, green or green one or a brown one? And at the time in Romania, the, the legionaries were debating, do we want to change the color of our uniform from green to brown? And they eventually decided to keep it green. But it struck me that Romanian men can't sew. And so if you're a young man and you want a uniform, you need to talk to your mum and get her to, to, um, to make it for you. And you see, you've got all these networks of people who are not necessarily actual activists, but who are friends of activists or mothers or sisters or children. Um, and this, this sort of semi-illegal activism implicates the entire family. And so very, very often people become legionaries because their brothers or sisters were legionaries. Um, often legionaries will marry other legionaries and then you turn a wedding into a big propaganda ceremony because legionaries will come from all over the region and then they meet your neighbours and you have like political discussions at the wedding. Uh, they'll have meeting circles or reading circles where they talk about this sort of stuff. And so propaganda and becoming a legionary is a very social activity. And I think that reinforces this group identity strongly. Mm -hmm. And they also were setting up cooperatives and restaurants and, and sort of entrepreneurial. And how successful was that? And what was the purpose of these entrepreneurial activities? So the purpose of the entre entrepreneurial activities is not to make money. Generally, they almost always made a loss. Sometimes they would extort leading businessmen into giving them the raw materials for free, um, and then they'd cook this food up and sell it at greatly reduced prices and always using free volunteer labour. So the legionaries would be the cooks and the waiters, and so you'd get lawyers, people with law degrees coming and serving food, which was unheard of in 1930s Romania. And this was a way of saying, you know, the legionaries every man. And we all, we're all in this together and we just care about each other. But more than that, we care about each other in a way that the Jew, the Jew doesn't. The Jew with the restaurant next to us, he's charging horrible, really high prices. Because, look, we can charge really cheap prices because we care about you. But they, they charge expensive prices um, because they're ripping you off. And so it's a way to undercut Jewish business and to show that Romanians can be businessmen and can do better than the Jewish competitors. That's interesting. And this also gets at um, this idea of the new man, which um, uh, there's a lot of um, masculinity as a value in, um, in, this, um, in the Legion. But so where are women? And you've mentioned that they're playing these supportive roles, but presumably if Legionaries are marrying each other, there are women who are members of the Legion. And, and what was their role as actual members, not just as surrounding supporters? Sure. So one thing that, that bothers me is I can't tell you how many legionaries were female. Um, I can work out, I can do a, a fairly, I think, solid estimate that at least 15% of the students in the 1920s who were involved in student activism were women, which is a significant number given 
that only 30% of students at the time were women anyway. So women are definitely involved as activists in ultranational communities. They have their own nests. Instead of meeting as nests, they say they're meeting fortresses. And there's a contradiction at the heart of legionary ideology when it comes to women because legionary publications constantly said women need to be either wives or mothers. Uh, a woman's place is in the home and is giving birth to children. And they're, the, they're really what we want women to be about. And so no one's actually telling women you need to become activists and card-carrying legionaries, but many do. And I think that what's going on here is this is a time of, of rapid urbanisation, industrialization taking place in Romania, and young, young women, especially college-age women, are leaving their, their homes and moving to the big city where they're by themselves. They're outside of their, their father's patriarchal gaze, paternal gaze, and they want to get involved in, in the public sphere. But they also want to be good girls, right? They want to be seen as good Christian girls who are not, you know, not the new woman. They're not cutting their hair short and um, engaging in non-feminine activities. And being a legionary lets you be a good girl um, while also being a political activist. And so they will go to rallies and marches. They will they'll sew flags. They'll have sewing competitions sometimes. They will. Um, what else do they do? They. Oh, I had a man, man, brain is just freezing now. Um, women are very active in the Legion Good. in a number yeah. of ways. Yeah. And to get back to what you um, have mentioned and then started you on this road is this relationship between the Legionaries and the Orthodox Church. And uh, so can you talk about both how the Legionaries viewed Romanian Orthodoxy as central to who they were, but on the other side, how did the Orthodox Church uh, relate to them, both those priests who were actively involved and perhaps um, church officials or priests who were not either not as supportive or outright opposed to the Legionaries, if those existed? So the church struggles with what, what to do with the Legionaries. The, the church, as most Orthodox churches in the region, is really deeply embedded in the national cause and with that Romanian nationalism in general. But anti-Semitism, not so much, which doesn't mean they're not anti-Semites. It's just they're not involved in organized anti-Semitism. To be an anti-Semite in the 1880s is to be an atheist because it means you're involved in progressive rationalist currents that is against superstition. And anti-Semitism suddenly become, all of a sudden, in the early 1920s, turns religious, particularly um, Ache Kuza suddenly discovers that he's a Christian, despite having been a very public atheist for many years. But he says, I've been reading the Old Testament, and the God of the Old Testament is bad, but the God of the New Testament is a good God. And the Orthodox Church, they have a problem in that they believe in the Old Testament as well. And so if you want to be a good anti-Semite, you have to get rid of the Old Testament. And so the church doesn't like this very much. Some of Kuz's followers, they're giving out pamphlets in front of the, the Metropolitan Cathedral in Yash, and they accidentally give one to the patriarch who reads and is like, wow, these guys are really bad. And so the church has to distance themselves from Kuza, but they quite like the idea of someone going around saying, respect the church, which is what Kovadanu is doing, and he wants to be seen as very pious. 
And so he goes out of his way to fast very publicly and talks about going to church and having everything blessed. Every time you make a new flag, you need to get a priest to bless it. And if the priest won't bless it, you beat him up. And you, several leading figures in the Orthodox Church who are strongly strong supporters of the Legion, but the Church itself, um, particularly the Patriarch, has his own political agenda, and the Patriarch becomes the Prime Minister in 1838, which was against Church law, but they worked out that they can ignore that temporarily. And so the Church is always ambivalent towards the Legion, and sometimes they'll support it, sometimes they won't, the Legion gets very angry and sometimes condemns the church for not supporting them. But local priests, by and large, are overwhelmingly enthusiastic about the Legion because these people, they're not, um, they're excited about religion. They're excited about the place of the church. They're anti-Jewish. Um, and one thing that Romanian priests were obsessed about at the time was alcoholism and they blamed Jews for running taverns that would um make Romanians peasants drink too much. And the other thing they're really worried about is um, repentance or neo-Protestants. And these guys are not them either. And so they're excited about religion, but they're not doing any of the bad things. And therefore, they strongly support the Legion. Many many priests become card-carrying legionary activists. And if you think about a normal village, the priest and the school teacher are the two people who are guaranteed to be literate and who people look to for their political opinions. And so having priests support you is incredibly valuable in terms mm. of grassroots organizing. And that actually transitions into um, my next question and I guess last question about the various groups supporting the Legion, and that is intellectuals. And the Legion was really actively engaged in printing posters and pamphlets and newspapers and books, and they needed people to write these materials. So there was a cohort of intellectuals who were supporting them and um so how were they, what were they doing, how, I should say, how were they articulating um, the Legion's position on various issues? And, you know, that's where it seems like the ideology uh, might come out more rather than just the practices. Um, I shouldn't say just the practices, but rather the daily practices. But there had to be some level of um, articulating um, uh, stances on, on various issues if they're publishing these um, levels of materials. Sure. There's, there's a huge cottage industry in Romanian studies of looking at fascist intellectuals. Um, why is it that some of the most brilliant people in the country, especially young intellectuals with their careers ahead of them, threw themselves heart and soul into a legion? And one thing I argue in the book is that for most legionaries, what mattered was not um, what these intellectuals were saying, but the fact that they were saying it. The fact that you've got some important intellectual who said I support the legion and wrote a book means that I can take this book and give it to everyone else I know knowing that I don't even have to read it right I know that the value of the printed word is that it can be distributed and that it exists not so much the words that are involved inside it and many of these intellectuals they're very young and they're products of a system where their elders have traveled abroad and been um, been educated abroad often in some of the, the top schools of Europe. And then they've come back and set up the universities and they don't want to give up their jobs. And so there's no jobs for this new second brilliant generation. And they're captivated by a professor of philosophy in, in Bucharest named Nayonescu. And he teaches them, probably more than anyone else, a doctrine that's very similar to existentialism, where 
you've got to live according to your beliefs and think about your beliefs. Um, and a, another very prominent public intellectual is Nikifor Kleinik, who's a theologian, theology professor in Bucharest. And between the two of them, these guys make fascism intellectually respectable and they, they mentor young, young, brilliant young intellectuals and they mentor them into the legion or into right-wing politics and use them to promote their own careers while also getting these guys to write ideology for a movement that had no ideology until the early 1930s when suddenly this massive group of Bucharest intellectuals suddenly start getting involved and writing it from scratch. Because what matters about the legion is not the ideology, but the practice of the violence. Mm -hmm. And so in the 1930s, um, uh, there's obviously a lot of crisis across Europe and the rise of, of these fascist movements, um, not just in Romania. And so I'd like to, um, as we uh, start to close up the discussion about the book, go back to politics. Uh, and in 1938, King Carroll revoked the Constitution and established a royal dictatorship. And you state that from this point onward, the everyday experience of fascism changed dramatically at all levels of the movement. So how did it change and, and why did this royal dictatorship create such a change? So what happens in December 1937 is the Legion wins. The, they don't win the elections. They, um, they get a significant proportion of the vote. And the people that win, the party that has the largest portion of the vote are passionately anti-monarchy party, and as are the Legion. Um, and the king doesn't want them in power, and so he turns to a smaller political party, this actually one led by Ace Cusa, an anti-Semitic party, and he puts them in power, but they do such a terrible job that within three months he, their, their job is to call new elections because the king says there wasn't good enough elections. And then... Election, electoral violence breaks out and it's worse than it's ever been. And so the king says, look, this democracy thing's not working. I'll make myself king and I'll crush anyone who wants to be a political party. And so he arrests Padreanu and after a trial, he gives him like 10 years in prison. And Padreanu is not really worried because he's been in prison a lot. But then one night they drive Padreanu and several of the, um, probably 15 of his supporters who were in prison at the time, out into a field where they garrot them and they say they were garroted while trying to escape. And according to the, the mythologized version, which may actually be true, they, they garroted them and then shot them in the head and then buried them and then came back the next morning, dug them up, poured concrete over, poured, poured sulfuric acid on the bodies and then concrete because they were really worried that Kodrana would rise again after three days. And in order to to, to stop any sort of movement on behalf of his followers, they then go out and just arrest en masse large numbers of legionaries. The legion revolts and responds by murdering, assassinating the Minister of the Interior, who's, who was appointed pretty much to crush the legion. And so then the legionaries get even more persecuted and large numbers of them are massacred, which means that all of the upper-level and mid-level supporters of the legion are in prison or dead by the end of 1939, making it effectively a very, very different movement. Mm -hmm. And so then with World War II and the Legion um, 
Can you tell us a bit about the Legion's role in World War II and with and what happened to it after the um, war with the establishment of the, the communist government? Sure. So when when King Carol starts arresting legionaries, uh, a core group of leaders flee to Germany, and they come back in September 1940 and stage a coup together with General Antonescu, military general, and set up a national legionary state without Kodanu and without most of the people who ran the movement during the 1930s. Legionaries are now in power, and they're extremely corrupt and extremely violent, and they drive the country into anarchy. Within five months, the general Antonescu turns against them, and fearing that he's going to get rid of them, they stage a revolution against him, a coup, and after three days of street fighting, the military crushes the legion and puts them in prison. The rest of them flee abroad again to Hitler's Germany. Hitler puts them in prison in Rostock and Buchenwald concentration camps, but as VIP prisoners. And they spend the rest of the war there and then afterwards set up a government in exile after the war and try to, and then form alliances with the CIA so they can drop legionary into communist Romania to fight against the communists. Most of the legionaries who get arrested under after the rebellion in January 1941, they get out of prison fairly quickly or else if they can't be convicted of actually having been involved in rebellion, they stay out of prison. And in July, what happens is Antonescu turns around and he stages a, um, an invasion together with Hitler of Russia, Operation Barbarossa, and starts massacring Jews en masse. Now, legionaries are not legionaries anymore, um, but many of them are conscripted into the army. So people with legionary pasts, uh, I can show, were on the Eastern Front at the time that Romanian soldiers were murdering Jews. I can't show you, I can't prove that they were leading the, the massacres. They probably weren't, but they were definitely there. And so when Romania kills 270,000 Jews in Roma, over the next couple of years, the legion, legion people who used to be legionaries are intimately involved in that violence, even if they're not leading it because it's done at the orders of Antonescu. So what are the legacies of the Legion of Archangel Michael in Romania today? And how is it viewed um, in contemporary Romania? Sure. So thinking in terms of historical memory, in the 1990s, you can't look back on communism as the golden age of Romanian history. And so you go back to an earlier golden age, which happened to be the 1930s. And you look back to your great intellectual heroes, like Emil Choran, Nietzsche Eliade, Konstantin Noika, and these guys all happen to be legionaries. And so you, you forget that they're legionaries and you celebrate the interwar period, but particularly right-wing people and philosophers as and writers as cultural heroes. Uh, and they, they're also the people who really stood up to communism in the 1940s, if late 1940s, if you want to fight against the communists, becoming a legionary, identifying as a legionary is a good way to do that. So many young people who were children at the time when Kodiyanu was around, they, um, they, they say, I'm a legionary, and they get arrested for fighting against the communists, and then they'll spend years in communist prisons. And while they're in the prisons, they're tortured horribly, um, some of them, respond to this torture through Christian mysticism and become very, very holy mystics. 
And so therefore the church sees them as saints and is is involved in, in processes of promoting the cult of of these people who were arrested as um, as legionaries, they promote them as Christian martyrs. And so all of this adds up to it's very easy to see the legionaries as a very positive social movement and an expression of people that really cared about their nation and good Christian boys um, in the 1990s and 2000s. And you still get strong pro-legionary currents in Romanian public life today. Hmm. Well, this was a fascinating book and thank you very much for talking through it with us. And I hope that um, some of, at least some of our listeners will go out and buy the book and read it because there's a lot of detail in there and a lot of uh, really interesting sources that you were drawing from. So to close up today's interview, what are you working on now? I'm working on two projects one of which I've talked a little bit about already. Uh, in, in the 1920s, 1922, the student violence that dominates Romania for the next five, ten years, the, I, I found that these Romanian students, they're talking to students in Germany and Poland who are also trying to kick Jews out of their universities using exactly the same rhetoric and exactly the same repertoires of violence that the Romanians are. Uh, and I started looking into it further, and so far I've found 11 different countries across East Central Europe that have massive student protest and violence against Jews in 1922-1923. So my next really big project is one that tries to do a transnational history of anti-Semitic student organising uh, across the entire region. And that's a fairly ambitious project, given yes. languages and national borders and things like that. Um, so in the meantime, I'm finishing. Uh, I'm finishing up at the moment a project on Petraki Lupu, who was a shepherd in 1935 in Romania, and he saw an old man who he identified as God, who told him people have to go to church and they have to not work on the feast days, and they have to not steal from the poor and not expose babies, and otherwise fire is going to come, and. He, he starts preaching this message and then people start getting healed. The place where he had his vision, the tree um, gives sap that will heal people. Uh, and so it becomes sort of the Lord Shrine of Romania or Our Lady of Fatima. And tens of thousands of people come to visit Petrakinuku's village. And I'm using that, as, that story as a way to unpack what Romanians thought and how they experienced and performed religiosity in 1930s Romania because everyone's got an opinion about it, right? Everyone has an opinion about what this shepherd, what's really going on there. And so you can get all different layers and people walks of life in Romanian society and to see how they all got involved. Um, so that's, that's the project I'm working on at the moment. Well, great. Those both sound like really interesting projects and hopefully in the future we'll have an opportunity to talk to you again about um, a book that comes out of uh, one or both of those projects. Um, so thank you for joining us today. And um, also thank you to our um, audience for listening to us. And we hope we'll, you'll join us again for the next new books in East European studies. <laughs>